Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would read some patron emails. Let's get into it. But before we do that, let's introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist, a professor, and a podcaster, if you couldn't tell. This email is from an anonymous patron. They write, If a sense of self is developed in the formative years of a person coming from a more functional family, at what age range would this development of self end? Good question. So developing a sense of self. If you don't know, a sense of self is the ability to know what you want and how you feel. It's the ability to uh, have some self-esteem, to self-soothe. The example I sometimes give is, say you're at work and your boss criticizes you and you feel like it's unfair. Or no, let's not even go there. Let's just say they criticize you. They're like, oh, you seemed, you know, like your boss comes into your office or whatever, your cubicle and says, huh, you know, I, I just wanted to point out that your your productivity seems a little lower than usual. I just, you know, just wanted to point that out. And so, you know, if there's something you can do to pick up the pace, I think that would be good. So in that instance, there is a threat to your self-esteem. A outside person is saying that you did something wrong and that you're inadequate in some way. And so in that moment, you... Uh, if you have a sense of self, you can call upon that self and soothe yourself. You can say, it, it, you, know, you have a knee-jerk reaction of, of hurt and anger, but then you quickly say, if you have a good sense of self, you'll say something like, well, okay, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong, I don't know, but you know, this doesn't mean I'm a bad person, um, I, I'm not ashamed of this, even even if it is true. You know, my, my self-esteem doesn't hinge upon me being the best worker at this job or the approval of my boss. The other thing is the ability to kind of have perspective. You know, there's, there's a, uh, if you're, if it particularly hurts your feelings, you might think, oh my God, my boss hates me. Everyone hates me at this job. And then again, you call upon your sense of self and you very quickly say, no, that might be taking it too far. Uh, there's no evidence that my boss hates me and that everyone hates me. It's possible that my boss really likes me, but just has this one complaint and it's not a big deal. It's, it's okay. So that's what a sense of self gives you. And you develop a sense of self when you're young during the years of uh, between zero and four, four or five. It, it never really ends. The development of self you know, continues throughout your life. But the main years that you are rapidly uh, developing a sense of self is uh, between zero and five-ish. You could even say it's a little after zero, like one to, one to five-ish. These are the years in which children do not have a sense of self. They can't soothe themselves very easily particularly when they're really young, like two or three, and the uh, parents will soothe the toddler, the child, and over time, the child learns how to soothe themselves. Also, the child learns what they want when the parents reflect what they want. The child is throwing a tantrum, and the parents say, oh, I think you're hungry, or oh, I see, you're really angry that we have to leave the park, I see. But the kid might not even know that. They just... You know, you're trying to get them to go home and they're at the park and they don't want to and they just flop on the ground and they start screaming. If you ask them in that moment what's going on, they might not even really know. They All they know is that they just feel really bad and they're very upset about it. So it's up to the parent to say something along the lines of, okay, I get it. You You want to leave the park and that's very upsetting to you. But, you know, we'll be back to the park tomorrow. How about that? And with, you know, you repeat that enough times and kids will internalize those voices so that they can, one, soothe themselves, but also they, they have a sense of what they want and who they are. It's a weird thing to think that some kids through mistreatment, neglect, and trauma and abuse will emerge from those years without developing a sense of self. And then it compounds later on. And it's not like the mistreatment ends at five and it continues. And so someone can be 45 years old and not know who they are and what they want. And, uh, it, and it's, it, there's a spectrum too. Some people have a, um, a, you know, some self and some people have more self and some people have a very robust sense of self and some people have zero sense of themselves. 
These are people that are higher on the spectrum of personality disorders usually. So um, going on with the email here. For those people who have experienced more trauma during those formative years and are now working on developing a greater sense of self as adults, what might the approaching completion of the development of self look like? You've mentioned before that clients in therapy require much more, possibly decades, of time to fully develop this sense of self as adults once they experience childhood trauma that disrupts this process. But I'd love to hear you talk about some of the things clients may start to notice as they reach completion of this sense of self. And the anonymous patron goes on with their email talking about how they are in therapy and trying to develop a sense of self after experiencing a lot of mistreatment as a child. So I think I've talked about this in the past a little too simplistically, or maybe even I thought about it in a simplistic way. Your email prompted me to really think about operational experiences with clients with regards to this development of self. And the um, the reality is, is that there are some people who go through a tremendous amount of mistreatment as children. They enter therapy. So I'd say there's there's two categories, two sort of broad categories. And so it's or on the spectrum, there's two zones on the spectrum that, that are worth talking about in terms of this lack of self that I've experienced. Some people have experienced tremendous mistreatment and neglect. And when they enter therapy, they seemingly have very little sense of who they are and what they want and have a really hard time soothing themselves. And so they have a fairly elaborate coping scheme where they either avoid or move in to people too fast or they just have a really hard time managing relationships and become easily hurt uh, and they will either avoid or they'll attack. Um, so you have you know, narcissistic people avoid, borderline people tend to attack and uh, or they're passive aggressive dependent. You know, there's all these different coping skills that, that was learned very early in life. And with some of these people, what I found is that with a little bit of therapy, just even like one or two sessions sometimes, they seem to develop a sense of self or at least enough sense of self very quickly. And my estimation is those people had enough security during those formative years to give them at least some foundation upon which as they're, you know, as that they can stand on when they begin to work on their sense of self. So I've seen that. I've seen some people develop, uh, go from, you know, zero to 50 on a scale from one to, you know, zero to a hundred in terms of a sense of self within a couple of sessions or maybe like a few months or something. And that is very gratifying. It's really great to see that. But there's this other category of people, and I suspect they were uh, much more mistreated. It's hard to put things on a spectrum, um, but they experienced it much more worse. It was much more consistent, and there was no oasis like a grandparent or something uh, from the mistreatment. And so, uh, and the and the mistreatment might have extended throughout their life. These people, uh, I have found they have a much harder time developing a sense of self. These people are more, you know, they're higher on the scale of personality disorders, and it takes a long time. It can really take a long time. So it kind of depends. So you, you can, the, the, an easy way to um, suss this out, it, a very quick test that I thought of right now is to think about your career. What think you know when you think about your career, what what it's been so far? Has it been your choice? Is it what you want? You know, to people with a sense of self, they might have a complicated answer to that, but and but they'll have an answer to it. They'll be like, well, yeah, I mean, I like my career, but you know, I had other ideas of things that I wanted to do, um, but you know, the decisions that I made, this is where I am right now. Or they'll say, yeah, absolutely. This is exactly what I want to do. Or they'll say, no, I really don't like my career at all. So the response will, the quickness or the clarity of the response will indicate a higher sense of self. If in your mind, when I ask you to think about your career and to think, was it your choice? Is it what you want to do? If your responses tend to not really answer the question, which is what I get from some people, then that is a litmus test possibility of a, an indication of a, you know, you're lower on the spectrum in terms of a development of self. Things that I'll hear from people who lack a sense of self when I ask them about their career, 
they'll say things like, um, well, you know, it's a good career and uh, I make money. And I'll say, well, but is it what you wanted? Is it what you wanted to do with your life? They'll, they'll just say, um, well, uh, what do you mean? You know, I don't, I don't get, why are you asking me if it's what I want? Well, I don't know. I'm just wanting you to know, like, is, is your career a decision that you made? Does your, does your career resonate with you? You know, you're spending all this time. Is it something that you really want to do or is it not? And they'll be like, well, I don't know. Does anyone really care about their career? So there's, they're not avoiding the question. They just don't know how to answer it because the, the fact is that when they turn their inner eye on the self to ask, you know, to, to know what you want, you have to observe you. You have to turn your attention to you. And if you can't see anything, then you don't know how to answer that question. And you, you don't even know the basis of that sort of question. And so that's what I've seen from people with a lack of self. They, they will answer it either in a way that is sort of confused. They just don't even know what you're asking. Or they're really quite terrified of the question because when they turn their inner eye inward to themselves, they don't see anything. They just see a big black abyss. And that's very scary to people. It's very terrifying for people to, to feel as though they're empty on the inside. You'll hear people say, I'm empty. I'm broken. And I'm here to tell you that if you're one of those people, you are not empty. You're not broken. You just are not connected to what you want. There is something there. It's just that, uh, you know, think of it as a bedroom with the lights out. You, you, there's, there's stuff in the bedroom. There's a bed. There's a dresser. There's pictures on the wall. There's, um, you know, rug. There's pillows. There's, you know, uh, your clothes. There, there's a lot of things in your bedroom. But when you look inside, the light isn't on, so you see nothing. You, there, there's nothing in there, uh, seemingly to you, but there actually is a lot of things in there. You, if you lack a sense of self, it's not, it's, it's your, you lack the sense of self, but you actually do have a self. You just don't know, you just can't access it. For people who have a sense of self, the lights are on. They look in their bedroom and they see, oh, there's a bed, there's the dresser. They see it very quickly. But... For people who lack a sense of self, you have to, there, there is no easy way to turn the light on very quickly. And so through corrective experiences and through continually asking yourself what's in, maybe another way to think about it is like when, just going off this analogy, which I don't know if it's going to work, but you could say like we're all in the dark when we, when it comes to the self. And so over time, what we all do, there's no light for any of us. But over time, what we all do is we go into the bedroom and we kind of feel around like a blind person trying to figure out, oh, I think this is a dresser. Oh, that's a bed. Okay. And you get a, you get a sense of the lay of the room because you've gone around and felt everything in the room. Well, for people who lack a sense of self, they just haven't done that, maybe at all. They've never ventured into the darkness to feel out what's going on in there. So for people who have a sense of self, they've done it enough times that you just ask them and they'll be like, oh yeah, there's a dresser in that corner. I know that because I've, I've, I've wandered the darkness and found things in there. And so I know that they're in there. Whereas someone who lacks a sense of self, you say, what's in the room that they'll just say, there's nothing in the room, even though there are things. And so the way that this analogy works is that there, for people who lack a sense of self, you, there are feelings in your soul. There are needs, there are wants, there are ways to soothe yourself. You just haven't accessed them enough times to know that they're there. So you just say, well, there's nothing in there. I, 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 have, no, I have nothing about myself that is real and, and I'm empty and broken. And it's like, nope, you know, you're not empty. You're just, you haven't ventured into the self enough. And so an activity in therapy and for outside of therapy that I assign people to do is just to walk into that dark room and feel around to uh, operationally what this means is I'll ask clients, how do they feel? You know, I'll say, you know, about career, for example, I'll be like, um, how do you feel about your career? And they'll, they'll, they won't know how to answer that question at first. And I'll be like, okay. And I'll say, you know, like every answer you just, you just gave me is fine, but none of the answers you gave me really tells me what you want and how you feel about it. Now, you might not know how you feel about it, but I want you to really feel around. I don't use this analogy, but you know, I'll say, I want you to, I want you to really just think about how you feel about your career. Just ask the question. 
And they'll say, well, what if I don't have an answer? You know, that's terrifying. What if I, what if there's no answer to that question? I say, that's fine. We have to start somewhere. And where we start is we ask the question and I will ask the question. I will continually ask you what you want. How do you feel? Do you want to be in your marriage? How do you feel about being married? Do you want to live in that house? How do you feel about living in that house? They might say at first, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I, I, I don't have access to those things. You know, do other people have access to those things? But just asking those questions is, you know, compelling someone to em- enter that dark room and they start feeling around. And they're just like, okay, I, f- I don't feel anything yet. And, I, and I'm like, you got to go further into the room and you got to continually go there. You can't just walk through the room once because some people will. They'll, they'll access their feelings and they'll be like, okay, I now, I now know what I want and, and how I feel. And I'm like, no, you have to, you have to build those connections. I, I, I'm guessing that, and we don't have a way of really evaluating this yet, but I'm, I would speculate based on what I understand about brain uh, and neurons is that there are pathways in the brain that are either weak or not um, even there that connect the observing self with emotions and what you want and how you feel about things. Because when you're not necessarily born with those connections and it actually uh, is developed when, when parents reflect to children how they're doing, you know, like I said about earlier. And it's like, oh, I get it. You are really upset that you have to take a nap and you don't want to take a nap. I see, I get that. As you do that to kids, they start developing these pathways of observing the self and knowing what the self needs, knowing, you know, how the self is feeling. Uh, so you don't have those connections, but also it becomes a coping uh, a skill to actually not know what you want. Because if you're being mistreated later in life, like at the age of 10, it actually is functional for you to not know how you feel about things. Because if you don't know how you feel, then you won't experience the full brunt of the trauma. You'll just You'll experience it as very uncomfortable, but you won't actually know how you feel about it. And so that that helps to some extent. It softens the blow. or And you might also really want deep down to be loved. You might want deep down to be uh, treated with respect. But if you're not connected with those feelings, then you won't be disappointed because you, you, you just don't, you're not connected with these urgencies that you have in your soul to be respected and loved. And so you're not disappointed because you don't know what you want. So there's a lot of, you know, reasons for the lack of self, you know, it it develops in mistreatment and it, and it also helps people cope with the mistreatment. So yeah, it can take a long time, like I said, but, um, but it can also, uh, take a very short amount of time. Another thing that complicates it is if people are currently in a lot of stress and they have a lot of attachment issues that are ongoing. Really, you take anybody and you put them in a difficult relationship situation where they don't feel like anyone really supports them, then you're going to see more more people edging towards the lack of self spectrum. You know, you take myself and if I um, you know, if people close to me died and I was stressed out and I, you know, lost all my money or something and was homeless and, uh, no one loved me or supported me, then I'm going to start becoming what we call in the business, less differentiated. I'm going to become more fused. And another way of putting it is just, I will exhibit more lack of a sense of self because I'm stressed out and I'm regressing to a earlier part of my personality, like a three-year-old version of my personality. Plus, as I said, it's actually functional to be disconnected from that stuff because you, uh, if you don't know what you want, then you can't be disappointed. Anyway, hope that answers the question. Let's read another email. Okay, this next email is from patron Serenity. We met Serenity at the live event in January. Good to have met you. She writes, recently, the California legislature passed a new law allowing mentally ill defendants to be diverted out of the criminal justice system instead of being prosecuted. 
Mental health diversion basically means that the defendant is ordered to complete some kind of mental health program, and if they complete the mental health program successfully, then the charges against them will be dismissed. A defendant with any DSM diagnosis may qualify for a a mental health diversion under the new law with three exceptions, people who have antisocial personality disorder, people who have borderline personality disorder, and people who are pedophiles. These are the only three ones that are excluded from mental health diversion benefits. Everything else is eligible. I think mostly, I think this, it mostly shows that the legislature in California, they hate people who have borderline antisocial and are pedophiles or pedophiles. Not sure how the legislature decided on that. It probably has problems, but it could also help a lot of people. Using prisons as warehouses for mentally ill people isn't really, really a good solution. The DAs are up in arms about this statute. They think it's going to let all kinds of criminals go unpunished, and counties don't want to implement it because it costs money. End of email. Yeah, interesting. I uh, so there's a there's a lot of nuances to this. So uh, on one hand, I think it's a wonderful thing if someone is, for example, psychotic. And they, uh, while they're psychotic, they commit a crime, like they assault someone or they um, steal something. You know, there are people who, in the midst of a psychotic episode, might believe that the 7-Eleven is theirs. You know, they could be like, that's my 7-Eleven and everything in it is mine and I'm going to take what's mine. And to uh, send that person to prison where they're not going to get any treatment is not the answer, right? So the answer is, in, in terms of like, how are we going to reduce the likelihood of this crime happening again, while also, you know, not having cruel and unusual punishment is to, uh, the one of the best things you can do is is mandate that the person go through a mental health regimen of medication and check-ins with a therapist, maybe a therapist with wraparound services for the uh, the um, family and this sort of thing. And then the person is, you know, uh, much less symptomatic as a result. And will it has not only improved their life, and, but the lives of people around them and is not likely to commit any more crimes because they're not inherently a criminal. Really, nobody is, or very few people are. But uh, they only committed the crime because of untreated psychosis, right? So this mental health diversion can be uh, a wonderful thing for situations like that. Or someone is uh, suffering from drug addiction and they need their fix or else they're going to suffer from extreme withdrawal symptoms and so they, they steal a car stereo. And so for this person, going to prison is probably not going to really help. What's really going to help is for them to be treated for the various different reasons uh, that compel them to use substances to begin with. Maybe it's trauma. Maybe it's, um, you know, depression or something, anxiety. There's a lot of reasons why people use. That The older I get and the more people I am um, in contact with, the more I realize that 99.9% of people who suffer from some sort of substance abuse issue are only using to cope with something more fundamental to their suffering. And it's often attachment issues. Uh, men are more likely to have problems with alcohol and the reason for that is not because men like alcohol more. It's because men are, in general, more neglected emotionally and are also, uh, once they grow up, because of the way they're taught and socialized, they don't reach out for any help. So you could have you know, a 50-year-old guy who has been treated fairly, um, you know, he's, he's been treated fairly coldly. He, you know, there's, there hasn't been a lot of warmth in his life. And he also believes that that's the way things are. That's the way things are supposed to be. And he um, thinks that crying is emasculating or asking for help is emasculating. And he's just alone and constantly suffering and constantly hurt. But he doesn't frame it that way. He just frames it as like, well, the world sucks or I, I, you know, I, I, I'm independent. I need to do things on my own. Meanwhile, deep down inside of him is this tremendous need for connection and warmth and security and um, the, you know, just the ability to, to exhale upon um, relaxing in someone's arms. 
but he doesn't even know how to frame it that way. And even if he did, he doesn't think that it's possible within masculinity to, to ask for such things. And he needs some way to cope with the suffering. And, and he finds that when he drinks, he doesn't suffer as much. Um, or he, when, he uses, when he pops a Percocet or when he takes heroin or when he uses crack or when he smokes pot every night, it takes away that pain. So anyway, when we have people that enter the criminal justice system who uh, say yeah, because of their heroin addiction stole a car stereo, then um, you know the best answer is to treat that underlying attachment problem because that's the thing that will really fix the issue because then they won't need to use. And when they don't use, then they don't need to steal car stereos anymore. So on one hand, as Patron Serenity points out, this could help a lot of people in this way, and I, I totally agree with that. But on the other hand, it's also kind of funny because whenever the courts are involved in DSM diagnosing, uh, even if they have experts and psychologists that provide those diagnoses and those assessments, I, I always get a little, um, I always am a little um, scared of that. Because as I often talk about, these diagnoses, they're not real things, right? It's not like cancer. You know, when you are diagnosed with cancer, you can actually find the cancer in your body. When you're diagnosed with Alzheimer's, you can find the functional evidence of it. There's actual, like, I don't know the exact wording, but like there's holes in the brain or dead parts in the brain. The brain is deteriorating. When you have Parkinson's, a uh, similar sort of thing. When you have hair loss, then all you got to do is look to the, your head and say, hair's falling out of my head. I've been diagnosed with hair loss syndrome or whatever medical people call it. Or you are diagnosed with, um, I don't know, HIV. Well, under the, under the uh, uh, microscope, we found the evidence of HIV virus in your bloodstream or I don't know exactly how they determine that. But there's there's physical markers of syndromes and of, of disease and pathology. In, in psychopathology, there's nothing like that, unless you're talking about, say, Alzheimer's. If you're talking about depression or anxiety or even psychosis, there's, there's nothing to uh, determine that for sure this is what's happening. People can fake it. There's been many cases of people faking it. People can misunderstand, you know, assessors can misunderstand things. They can blow things out of proportion. And I took a, a, a number of courses in my doctoral program on forensic psychology. And a lot of the uh, sorts of jobs that forensic psychologists do uh, that I, I, I guess I'm sort of qualified to be a beginner in that field, but decided I didn't want to do it because it just wasn't very interesting to me. But a lot of what they do is uh, someone will be uh, can, or, uh, charged with a crime and the uh, state will ask a psychologist to assess that, uh, that um, suspect to find out if they were sane at the time of the crime or that they're fit to stand trial. Because if you're um, significantly uh, unaware of certain things due to psychosis or whatever, then you are treated differently either at the time of the crime or even during the time of the trial. And what I found was a lot of these forensic psychologists, because their job sort of depends on it, they are very sure about their findings. These, these forensic psychologists will spend, you know, a couple hours with someone and they'll make a determination and they'll write up a psycho psychological report and they'll administer tests and blah, blah, blah. And they walk, they, they put a stamp on, you know, they say this person is, you know, uh, they are co competent to stand trial or this person was absolutely, uh, you know, mentally ill at the time of the crime or significantly symptomatic at the time of the crime. And therefore that should be taken into consideration for the trial. And w again, what I find is these psychologists are a hundred percent sure of what they are, of, of what they are saying. The funny thing is when you actually uh, watch these cases is a couple other psychologists will come in and assess the same person. And depending who is paying for the service, they will find something completely different. And that psychologist will also be 100% sure of, of what they're saying in their report. And who's to say who's right and who's wrong? 
Well, you can't because, you know, there's, there's, it's too squishy. It's too much of a gray zone. There's not a cancer cell to find. Someone can say, um, this person was so psychotic, they did not understand the difference between right and wrong when they killed that person. Um, because the thing is, is you can be psychotic or you can be depressed at the time of the crime. But the issue is, is did the mental illness make it so that you couldn't uh, think rationally in that situation? You know, just because you were depressed doesn't mean you can kill people, for example. But if you're depressed to such a level that you uh, and you're so symptomatic that you can't think straight, then that changes the way that the law treats you in general. And that's kind of what this California legislature is is talking about. And so the um, uh, so it, it comes down to this determination of, well, where's that line between someone who is psychotic and understands right and wrong and someone who, who is psychotic and doesn't understand right from wrong? And how do you determine that? Well, a major way that you do it is you ask the the accused, you know, what they were going through at the time. And, you know, that's a, that's a self-report thing and it's hard to know. So, uh, so when I see courts dealing with these extremely squishy concepts in a very concrete manner that determines the course of someone's life, I get scared of what can happen in situations like that. I get, because, um, there's likely to be no one in that courtroom who understands the nature of DSM diagnosing, that it is a squishy thing. And the judge, the jury, the lawyers, the, you know, the, the defendant, they all f- assume that diagnosing in the mental health field is a science, is a hard science when it's not. And, uh, and the criminal justice system kind of depends on that false notion that it is a concrete thing. Of course, you're going to find, you know, dip, uh, exceptions to that in in uh, forensic psychologists and in courtrooms. But in general, I find that um, the way that uh, judges and lawyers talk about mental illness, it, they are, you know, naturally completely ignorant of what the, what it is. I mean, frankly, I find a lot of clinicians to be completely ignorant of what uh, how to uh, understand diagnosing. Um, and even in what I'm saying right now, there are nuances depending on the diagnosis. You know, uh, the difference between low-grade borderline and uh, not qualifying for the diagnosis is very squishy, for example. But when someone has PTSD, it doesn't take me very long to realize that they have it if, I, if I'm given enough time. And that's a real thing. It's a very distinct experience to have PTSD. It's extremely distinct. So is uh, true ADHD, which most people diagnosed in my experience with ADHD actually don't uh, have ADHD. And many people who have ADHD have never been diagnosed with it. ADHD is a very um, interesting diagnosis that manifests in a lot of different ways. But um, once I see it, I really see it. And uh, and it's, it's, But, you know, there's... You'll find if you take someone that I've diagnosed with ADHD and you uh, send them to someone else, they might see something different. Even if we both used, quote unquote, um, objective measures, right? These objective measures are uh, often self-report and observation based. And so it's like, how do we really know? So I get a little worried when uh, courts start throwing these things around. And the other issue is, is that uh, you're saying that in California... Everything in the DSM qualifies, all the personality disorders, all the mood disorders, all the psychotic disorders, I I suppose ADHD is included in there, conduct disorder, eating disorders, substance use, everything, you know, I don't know how many pages DSM-5 is, but like 800 pages or something. Everything is excluded except for three labels, antisocial, borderline, and pedophilia. Now, pedophilia, I guess... um, I understand that because of the way that culture works these days. You know, I've talked before about how uh, our um, the way our ethics and the way the privilege of confidentiality works 
in general is that if a client tells us that they've committed a crime, we don't report them. If they, you know, killed someone or they or they so, sold crack on the corner, we don't we can't report them. We can't even. It's actually against our ethical codes and against the law that we actually uh, uh, reveal that clients deserve confidentiality. And so, except for um, this. And, and particularly in some states like California that have actually pa- passed laws stating this, is that if our clients have committed a crime regarding pedophilia, like if they've looked at child porn on their computer, we might have to report that. And so uh, there's there's something about that thing that, you know, it's like if someone if someone came to me and said they killed their spouse, they come to me like, I killed my wife. I can't tell anyone that they did that. Now, inevitably, people will email me and say, well, you know, what if this and what if that? I'm just going to, you know, I've talked about this all before. We don't, when people come to us, it's a confidential relationship. There are very rare circumstances in which we break, you know, confidence. So if someone in general comes to us and says that they killed their spouse, we can't, sell it. we can't tell anybody about that. And yet, if they said they looked at one picture of child porn on their computer, we might have to report that. And we could all agree that <laughs> killing your spouse is a more uh, horrible act to our society than someone having looked at one picture of child porn on their computer. You know, they're not a, they haven't actually harmed any other kids in their, you know, real life. They've, they've looked at a picture. It, I, I'm glad that's illegal. And I'm glad that people are prosecuted for looking at child porn on their computer. Absolutely. But what I'm saying is, is that we have this weird situation. So anyway, in California, that, that pedophilia thing reflects that, which is ironic, because of course, if you are a pedophile, and you're attracted to kids, and you get convicted of a crime, wouldn't it be good if that person got treatment and, and wraparound services to prevent them from actually recommitting that than just housing them in prison for five years and releasing them and hoping for the best? Of course, not every state does that, and there's, there are treatment programs that can be mandated. But anyway, um, it's just interesting that pedophilia is left off uh, of, you know, so if, you, if, you, if you've been diagnosed as a pedophile, then uh, you don't qualify for the diversion case, you know. Having said that, I'm guessing that um, in California, even if you don't go through diversion, you still could be mandated to go through treatment. I'm not saying that anyway. But the but the real weird ones to me are antisocial and borderline, particularly borderline. I mean, I guess antisocial makes sense to me because if someone lacks empathy truly and they go through diversion, the chance that that's going to help them to not reoffend isn't very high. Well, even as I say that, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. Certainly, I can imagine someone with antisocial going through diversion and learning their lesson. Even though they don't have um, empathy, there are ways to actually help psych- psychopathic people develop a fake sense of empathy to keep them out of trouble. Because they, you know, people with antisocial, people with psychopathy, they, they don't want to be in trouble. They they want to live their life, and so that's one way that you can motivate them. And maybe a diversion program would help would help them with that. I mean, therapy can help people with that. But the borderline thing is bizarre, and I just can't imagine why you would put borderline on that. It's such a weird thing. You know, someone is traumatized, sexually abused, abandoned, mistreated, neglected as a child significantly. They grow up with severe uh, relational trauma and as a coping skill, they are extremely preoccupied in terms of their attachment style. And they are hurt very easily and even somewhat uh, delusional when someone hurts them. And they uh, react out of that and uh, might commit a crime. Like like a, a common one is actually to become violent and controlling of your spouse. And so let's say you get convicted of that crime. Well, wouldn't they, the way I framed it, shouldn't they be eligible for the diversion program just like someone who had psychosis and, and committed a crime? Shouldn't we give them some allowance? The other thing is, is, Passive-aggressive personality people or histrionic people um, or narcissistic people, for that matter, are just as prone to these kinds of react- reactions and 
I'm guessing the same sort of crimes as someone with borderline. It's not like it's not like narcissistic personality disordered people are somehow um, uh, that vastly different from borderline. So such that the the version it should be allowed for someone with narcissism and not for someone with borderline. That that one just is really bizarre. And I'm guessing that the criminal justice system must have it must have a different sense of borderline. Like they must have uh, people labeled with borderline that are uh, quite specific. I'm guessing. I'm not quite sure. Or uh, the the um. The advisor. I'm sure that this leg, when the California legislature passed legislature passed this uh, law, they must have had an advisory committee of clinicians and you know psychologists. Maybe even there's some people on the legislature who are actually um, clinicians themselves. And those clinicians must hate people with borderline, or must think that borderline people cannot be treated. That kind of thing. So, or have experience with only the most severe people with borderline. So, I don't know. It, it's it, you know, it's interesting. All right, let's take a break. What do you say? All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron yet, do so now. Go to patreon.com. Also, like our Facebook page so you can participate in our Tuesday Tougher Bluff game. It's always fun to do that. Also, join the Facebook fan group, of which I am not a part of, and, you know, communicate with other fans of the podcast. Um, To me, if you ever want to leave a comment uh, about the podcast, I would imagine the Facebook fan group would be the best place, because you could have a conversation with other people who are listening to the podcast. When you comment on YouTube or Patreon or, you know, one of the other places, I don't think you're going to get as much engagement with people. I think, um, you know, if you want to comment and have it be heard and start a conversation, the fan group, I think, is the best place to do that. I, I think. I don't know. All right. This email is from Charles, Charles in Paris. Charles writes, I am curious about using interpreters and in talk therapy. I see a gestaltist who speaks to me in his second language. I know that sometimes therapists need to use interpreters, and in fact, one time I interpreted for my mom when she needed to do a somewhat urgent first assessment for dementia. She went on to recommend a Mandarin-speaking therapist to take the case, but I found it really terrifying as an interpreter. Essentially, I ended up translating a lot of nonsensical language and tried my best to render it with the same patterns and meaninglessness she produced, but I was very afraid the whole time of messing up and ruining this woman's intake diagnosis. The experience made me curious about interpretation in therapy sessions. How does it work? Have you ever needed to use one? Does the U.S. have regulations about the language you're allowed to provide therapy in? Here in France, therapists are required to demonstrate the languages they can provide therapy in during the licensing process. Mine speaks per- perfect. F- my, my therapist speaks perfect Finnish, Swedish, English, and very good French, German, and Spanish, but he is only licensed to see clients in Finnish, English, and French, for example. End of email. I'll answer the last question first. No, the answer is no. We don't have licensing requirements regarding language. Basically, therapists uh, are, uh, it's up to us to self-police regarding that. So we don't really have anything like that. Also, our society tends to assume that everyone speaks English, and so, which is definitely not the case, obviously. And so, I'm guessing in in Paris, there's much more of a need because there's probably a lot more languages being spoken in Paris than, or in France in general, than in the United States in general, or at the very least that we acknowledge. We generally have uh, one language that people speak a lot of, and that's Spanish, right? And a lot of the people who speak Spanish also speak English, but very many people don't, particularly immigrants, right? So um, have I ever used a interpreter? Absolutely. So there's there's different um, language and words regarding interpretation and translation and stuff, but I'm just talking about the people who speak, uh, you know, they interpret through speech in session. And there's a lot of different things I could say. I think I've talked about it in the podcast before, but I'll just briefly talk about it here. In my early days as a therapist, I used it a lot. In my now, I don't have to because all my clients just by chance happen to speak fluent English or it's their first language. And so um, the issue was much more prevalent at the beginning of my career. And 
I had lots of different languages, Korean, Cambodian, Hmong, Spanish, Russian, um, Japanese, Chinese, Mandarin. Um, I'm trying to think what else I had. Oh, um, uh, Somali and other languages like that. So, and what I found was that it's very difficult to do a therapy session with an interpreter. You know, so much depends on the ability to understand each other and communicate freely. And interpretation, basically, it's like sending an email. It, you're, you're basically sending emails in person. The person says something to the interpreter, the interpreter processes it, and then tells me what the, they said. And so I'm, I'm watching this mom of five talk, and I don't know anything she's saying, and then I wait, you know, 30 seconds, and then this interpreter says to me in English, and then I'm like, oh, and then I respond, okay, you know, tell the client, blah, 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 and then I have to wait, and then I have to wait for a response. So it's akin to essentially texting your client in the same room, and that is a very difficult way to build a relationship, and it's very difficult to... um understand what's happening because so much is nonverbal, right? As Charles from Paris, you can attest to, there's so much in language and there's so much in communication that you just can't really encapsulate. And so uh, it can be very hard. And what I found that I ended up doing was I ended up being extremely precise in these sessions. Like I wouldn't really beat around the bush. I, I And plus I kind of had time to think about what to say too, you know, while the people are speaking Spanish to each other. I'm like, okay, what am I going to say next? And so it, it was a, it was a different mode. And I, I feel like there, you, you can't do it the way you normally do it. Cause you know, normally you're just going back and forth and talk therapy. There's a sort of freedom to that. But um, if you do that, I find the therapy session ends up having about like, you know, 2% the effectiveness of a regular therapy session. So you have to do it differently. And again, what I did is I don't, I don't know any other way to describe it other than to say I was much more precise. Like I might say something instead of beating around the bush or leading people down a Socratic method of um, helping someone, I might just overtly say to someone like halfway through the first session, I might just overtly say, so there are good parenting practices, there are bad parenting practices, and there are gray zone parenting practices. Like, that's a very precise thing to say, rather than subtly having a conversation back and forth with someone about parenting practices and me demonstrating that I understand that there's a spectrum of parenting practices. I, I just overtly say something because I, I feel like I, I need to get this across right away. Or I might precisely say something like, I can tell that you love your children very much, something like that. And I would never say it like that to a, to a client in, in English, but when it's an interpreter situation, like I, I can't, I don't have time to sort of go back and forth. Um, and it already takes a lot of time anyway to, to interpret. And plus, I'm not quite sure if they can pick up on my subtleties um, that they understand what I want to get across to them. Or in my questions, too, I might say, can you please tell me exactly what you do when your kid comes home late after curfew? Tell me the first, second, and third things that you do after your son comes home after curfew. Like, I would never frame it like that to, I, I would want to know that information, but I might just be like, tell me what happens when he gets home after curfew. If, cause I found that if I asked that question, tell me what happens when he gets home after curfew. Um, I find that the client might not understand really what I'm asking. And I might get like a lot of, uh, I might not get what I want in terms of the response. And I've, and, and it takes like a couple minutes to get a response from the client. And so I don't have time to waste. And so I, so I'm, I'm much more precise with in, in those situations. I found that to be useful. Also, another thing that, um, you know, is just a major thing to consider is like, you might not actually know what the client is trying to communicate to you. It's just, there's so much more possibility that you really just have no idea what, what they're saying. So you just have to be much more tentative about your conclusions as to what the client is trying to communicate to you. The other thing that I did, which I found that a lot of therapists didn't do, is I would meet with the interpreter prior to the meeting. 
if especially if it was the first time that I ever worked with that interpreter. And I would do a mini training. I would say, so this is a therapy session, which means that things might get intense and I need you to uh, be professional. So, you know, prepare yourself for, you know, trauma being talked about or um, something very intense to be talked about and know that I'm in control and I'm fine. And if you need to take a break, just tell me and, and we can work that out. Cause I've seen interpreters completely crumble because they're used to interpreting in court and in, or medical situations that are uh, typically not very intense. Whereas in the middle of a session, you know, two people, like I, I might, a lot of times it was family therapy when I did interpreting. And so I would have an interpreter for the parents and, and the kid would often speak English well enough. And so sometimes the parents and the kids would be in extreme conflict. And this is upsetting to anyone watching it. And the interpreter sometimes would lose perspective. Sometimes the interpreter would actually get involved in the conflict. I had this one, I think it was a Somali family or an Indian family, not sure where the interpreter was also, I think, a pastor at a church nearby that the family might have even gone to. I'm not sure. Because, you know, sometimes with these, with with the people who interpret, they are from that community because they're some of the only people in the area who speak that language. And they, so they might know the clients or they might think that they know the clients. And the interpreter started yelling at the kid. And I completely lost the family because the interpreter started, you know, overstepped their bounds and started getting into a conflict with the kid, you know, calling the kid like, you know, you know, impertinent and that the kid needs to obey their parents and that kind of stuff. And the kid just looked at me like, I'm out. And I never got the kid back after that. And so I'm just sitting there watching because uh, I don't know what they're saying. I don't know. I, but I can tell body language wise, like, I don't think this is interpretation. The other thing, is, so I so I prepare people for that. The other thing that I prepare interpreters for is, please tell me what is actually happening. Not not the actual. Don't necessarily just tell me the words. I need you to, to tell me what this person is trying to communicate with me. So, say you're talking to a Mexican immigrant uh, parent, and they are talking. They're using some metaphor from the old country, and the um, interpreter just, you know, uh, verbatim recites the, um, the, uh, the idiom, the, uh, phrase, and I don't know what they mean. So I, I, so, and to some interpreters, that's what they think they're supposed to do. But I tell them, don't do that. Tell me what the person is trying to tell me, you know, like what the best interpretation that I like is when an interpreter turns to me and, sa and says, so I think she's trying to tell you this. Instead of just saying the phrase, you know, if saying the phrase communicates, then great. But sometimes I'll have an interpreter that'll just be like, so, you know, what she's getting at is this. I, I think this is what she's trying to tell you. That's more helpful to me because in therapy, I need to know that. Um, the other thing is, is once I found interpreters that I liked, I would try to make sure that I worked with them ongoing. There was this one Spanish interpreter that I worked with a lot. And I even I'm still friends with them on Facebook, I think. But anyway, yeah, so it, it can it can be kind of rough and but sometimes that's all you that's the only option you got. And I find that in Seattle, for whatever weird reason, uh, at least in my anecdotal experience, they, the the industry of psychotherapy at agencies doesn't really capitalize on the fact that a lot of therapists are bilingual or speak multiple languages. I've had uh, supervisees who spoke Spanish fluently as a second language. They spoke English as a first language. And I initially thought, well, geez, you know, they're going to have no problem getting a job because there's going to be so many, there's such a need for Spanish speaking therapists. And because one, it's a better service when you speak the language of the clients, but two, the agencies won't have to pay for interpretation. That's expensive, you know, um, or it, I don't know if the agencies pay for it or the state pay, pays for it, but someone's paying for it. And so if you just have therapists who speak the language of the clients, then all that, uh, you know, there's just a huge benefit to that and, and, and cost savings. And, and if your agency has a bank of therapists that speak a variety of languages, including English, then you're going to get more clients that way too. So your business is going to go up. But I found that uh, agencies just didn't really pay attention to that. Certainly some do, but I found that, that, that they didn't um, pay attention to that enough. They were much more just concerned about people um, just being good workers and that kind of thing. 
Anyway, this next email I'm getting to you know lower on my list. Emails that I've got a long time ago. I apologize if I haven't talked about these things on the podcast. You know, it could be years that you sent me this email. I don't know, but um, this uh, email is from famous patron Lyndon. He is wanting to know about DSM five. He came across an article and he's asking what I think about it. And in the article, uh, it talks about how the um, f- former chair of the DSM-4 task force. So, you know, we have DSM-5, which is our uh, book that has a bunch of labels in it regarding, uh, you know, psychiatric conditions. And the there's, there's a task force who works on, uh, you know, collaborating with all the different professionals to update each version. And so the the previous version was DSM-4. That's the one I was initially trained on. And there was a chair of the task force, the, the head psychiatrist who leads the efforts uh, to write the book. And presumably this would be someone that would know a lot about, uh, you know, DSM and this sort of stuff. And uh, this person uh, came forward, you know, when DSM-5 came out, and said, uh, essentially said this, my best advice to clinicians, to the press, and to the general public is to be skeptical and don't follow DSM-5 blindly down a road likely to lead to massive overdiagnosis and harmful over-medication. Um, and goes on to talk about how DSM-5 pathologizes normal grief and um, how a lot of things in DSM-5 uh, are lowering the threshold at which people would qualify for certain labels. And the article writer here says, it's it's as if Colin Powell, you know, our um, uh, American general during the, uh, uh, you know, um, or wait, would this be Colin Powell when he was uh, defense secretary? Anyway, almost as if Colin Powell were to advise U.S. defense and State Department employees n- to not blindly follow administration orders. So what this article is, is saying like, wow, uh, you know, for someone to be prominent uh, in the DSM, DSM world to be saying, ah, you know, take it with a grain of salt is sort of shocking to people. They're like, shouldn't, you know, wait, are you saying like it's not a good uh, guide? And um, yeah, there's always every DSM version has always had tremendous debate. There are, um, you know, the whole history of the DSM and even before the DSM, because this thing that we do is a gray zone, and because a lot of things depend on how we define these conditions, there has always been fighting and there's always been disagreement. And there has always been a section of people who don't even use the DSM. I have colleagues who don't even use it. They take private pay. They don't use medical insurance. So all their clients pay, you know, $100, $150. They just write a check every session. And therefore, the therapist doesn't have to diagnose them at all. And so for, you know, decades, they haven't even cracked the DSM. And uh, they, you know, do that partially because, you know, just the way they practice, but also some people do it because they just hate the DSM. They just think it's not a good way to see human beings. And um, I, you know, I can absolutely uh, sympathize with that position. And, uh, but at the same time, I think the DS, to me, the DSM essentially is one example of a publication, and there are many, that uh, puts together the prevailing consensus notions regarding labels of psychiatric conditions. That's all that it is. It's just, it's just the consensus of a particular group of people. It's not the only way to see things. And I don't know if anyone writing the DSM would claim that everyone should just blindly follow, follow the DSM. It, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a gray zone. It's a squishy thing. And we all just need to you know, think about what all that means. For example, in the DSM-5, they lowered the threshold for which someone can qualify for a drug disorder, you know, like cannabis use or, you know, alcohol use disorders. And so people can qualify for these conditions at a much higher rate. So someone who just barely has an issue with cannabis can qualify for a label in the DSM. But we have to think about what that means. Just because someone qualifies for a label in the DSM doesn't mean that we automatically have to do something about that. 
So we just have to know that, okay, if this person is on the light side of that diagnosis, then maybe we don't need to do anything with them. Maybe we don't need to actually recommend intensive outpatient. Maybe they need to have, maybe they need to qualify for the moderate range in that disorder in order to uh, recommend that they or force them to do intensive outpatient. You know, these are the sorts of decisions that courts and clinicians will make is like certain thresholds for forcing someone to go to drug treatment or certain thresholds upon which you would start um, applying a, a medication. And so everyone just needs to understand that just because someone qualifies for a label doesn't mean you just automatically do something. You need to take the full person into consideration and the severity of the condition. And so, you know, that's always been true. And if DSM-5 kind of lowers the threshold and a lot of labels, then everyone just needs to understand that. They say, okay, well, now this label doesn't mean exactly what it used to mean. And so we just have to adjust our practices because of that. Um, also, you know, in general, uh, the when therapists are looking at people, in my experience, they don't define them by diagnoses, by, by DSM diagnoses. Um, a lot of people outside of psychology tend to think that's what it's used for. It's like, well, you know, because you go to the physician and they diagnose you with the flu and they, you know, and that's all that they need. And then they give you, a, you know, some sort of treatment. Well, in the psychotherapy world, it's very different. If someone's coming in for a very discrete problem like PTSD or a phobia or bipolar, uh, which is often the case for psychiatrists, by the way, which is what the DSM is primarily used for, honestly. It's mainly a psychiatry tool because it's the American Psychiatry Associate, Psychiatric Association that writes that thing. But in psychotherapy in general, for everyone that I know, the sorts of things that we pay attention to might partially be related to DSM, but even if the DSM is part of the assessment picture, it's, it's a small part. People come in with problems related to their marriage or infidelity or their sexual life or their sense of self or their emotional regulation or loss and grief or they don't know what to. They don't know if they should marry someone or not. They don't know if she, they should divorce or not. Or they don't know if they should pursue a particular religious angle or not. Or a job that they're you know wondering about. Or uh, they're worried about their spouse's parenting style. There is nothing in the DSM other than V codes that uh, address those issues. There's no diagnosis for conflict. There's no diagnosis for worrying about your spouse's parenting style. The, these are, or, or just having a bad parenting style. There's nothing in the DSM. And yet there are therapists who spend their entire career working on parents and their parenting uh, approaches. And yet there's, no, there's nothing in the DSM that addresses that at all. Again, V codes will, but those are different. So, uh, so for, for us in the, in the real world, the DSM is, you know, a really minor part of our everyday practice. It's a, it's a very minor part of my everyday practice, I can tell you that. When clients come to see me and they're using insurance, then I have a brief conversation with them about what label we're going to legitimately apply and send to the insurance company to justify payment. And from then on, I, I pretty much, you know, don't think about it at all, <laughs> unless it's, you know, extremely salient to the actual therapy, which it, it can be sometimes. I mean, I'm definitely, you know, if someone comes in and they're suffering from an adjustment disorder, for example, I'm definitely addressing the adjustment disorder in the future, but I'm not framing it in my mind as an adjustment disorder treatment strategy. I'm framing it in my mind as um, something broader than that, something more human than that. And so, um, so there's that. Having said that, someone comes in with PTSD, I'm absolutely going to be uh, focusing on that aspect of themselves. And, and we're going to talk about trauma, we're going to talk about PTSD. And, and I'm going to use measures to measure PTSD and all that kind of stuff. So it varies. But um, yeah, so reading this article, I, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, I get it. And I think that uh, for people outside of our um, industry, it might just seem a little strange that the chair of the DSM-4 task force would read DSM-5 and say, eh, 
let's take it with a grain of salt. Um, you know, I, any responsible mental health clinician understands we need to take the DSM with a grain of salt. Not because DSM is a bad instrument. It's because there's no instrument, there's no book, there's no diagnostic manual that would completely nail it because there's nothing to nail. It just depends on how we define things, right? We can say this person has a, has a disorder related to cannabis and this person doesn't. We just have to agree what, that, what those criteria are. And we do that by consensus. There's, there's not actually something to be measuring. You know, when they collide protons in the Large Hadron Collider, uh, people don't get together and say like, okay, well, how are we going to define a quark? You know, they're just like, no, we, you see quarks. There's quarks that are, you know, detected and other particles. You, you might have some theory about like, well, what does it do and what does it mean? And you have to decide about what you're going to call it. But it's a discrete particle that you're observing in, in the natural world. And you, you know, you can't just say, well, I'm going to ignore that. Or I, according to my viewpoint, quarks don't exist. You can't do that because quarks do exist. So, but in psychology, someone could come along and say, I don't believe that conduct disorder exists, or I don't believe oppositional defiant disorder exists, or I don't believe that the vast majority of cases of ADHD exist, or I don't, you know, I don't believe in adjustment disorders. Or I, I think this is pathological grief, and I think this is not pathological grief. There's no, you can't fight against that. You can have a conversation around the political and clinical implications of that point of view, but no one can say that someone's wrong. It's just, it's, it's just you define it. And so it, any book that comes out that tries to do that is going to, you know, it, it's going to be some people's take on the consensus and it's not going to have a consensus. And honestly, that's a wonderful thing. You know, our field is very squishy and I like the fact that, you know, it remains that way. And I, I, there's no way to make it unsquishy. I, I wish it wasn't squishy, honestly, but there's just, there's just no way given our current technologies or the ability for our brains to understand itself to make it unsquishy. Anyway. So let's just adjourn there. That does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle in which I answered some emails. Good to, I always like uh, doing this sort of thing. I've got my uh, pages down to about 29 pages. So let's see if I can get that down even further in another episode. Thanks so much for emailing. It's always great to get your interesting emails and your interesting questions. I find that when I respond to your questions, they are probably the sort of questions that a lot of people are wondering about, right? Um, so if you have a question, let me know. Uh, uh, as always, I always appreciate things that are not deep dives. I have, I, I have a list of like 30 deep dives I have to get to. So unless your deep dive is something uh, that's obviously something I need to be looking into, don't send me any deep dive questions. I mean, you can do it, but just know that it'll get put at, a, at the end of a very long list. But short questions are appreciated, you know, little questions like, I self-disclose this in therapy. What do you think about that? Or, you know, what's the ethical implication of this or that? Or, um, you know, how does, uh, when you develop a sense of self, or I think I've developed a sense of self. Uh, here's why I think that, you know, what do you think? D does it sound like I'm developing a sense of self? You know, those little questions, they're, they're big questions, but they're quick for me to answer. So feel free to send those, please. Thank you. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <music> <laughs>